Serial Killing a Podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by me, Alyssa Carroll. This is an independent production, no network, no contracts, and I need your support. Please subscribe, follow on my socials linked below, or go to my Patreon to show your support. Thank you so much. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am Not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello again and welcome to Serial Killing a Podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode and who get early access to each podcast. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on another artist, Richard Dad. Bachinski was such a huge success. I figured we can sprinkle these in from time to time, guys. Ready? So let's get started. Richard was born on August 1st, 1817 in Chatham, Kent, in the very southeast corner of England. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. In 1817, the U.S. Congress passed a law to split the Mississippi Territory after Mississippi drafted a constitution, thus creating the Alabama Territory. Also this year, James Monroe was sworn in as the United States' fifth president because they used to be able to be presidents longer than four-year terms. Also, the American School for the Deaf opened in Hartford, Connecticut. So an earthquake struck Palermo in the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Another earthquake struck Argentina's Santiago del Estero province. The Great Rebellion of 1817 to 1818 began in Sri Lanka. The rush bagot Treaty was signed, which was a treaty between the United States and Great Britain limiting naval armaments on the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain following the War of 1812. And then we have a German inventor who drove his, quote, dandy horse, which was the earliest form of a bicycle in Mannheim. King Ferdinand VII of Spain, by royal decree, made the production and sale of tobacco a legal endeavor in Cuba, thus sparking the birth of the famous Cuban cigar industry. 
A large riot broke out in Denmark's Copenhagen prison, forcing the army to come take care of it and end it. The Erie Canal construction began in Rome, New York. The independent government of Venezuela was established, and Emperor Ninko acceded to the throne in Japan. I'm so curious. I wish I could visit Japan. So, a lot going on in the world the year that little Richard was born. His father was a chemist and druggist. His name was Robert Dad, and his mother was Mary Ann Martin. Robert, the father, was born sometime before 1790 in Kent as well. He at least had one older brother who was named after their father. Mary Ann, the mother, was born around 1792. Her father was Richard Martin, and he was a shipbuilder, and her mother's name was Sarah. Mary Ann and Robert were married in 1812, and they went on to have seven children together. Richard himself was number four. Mary Ann gave birth to a baby boy in 1823, and this would also be the year that she would unfortunately die, So it's highly possible that she died during childbirth, as this would not have been necessarily uncommon for the times. Richard was just six years old when his mom died. So taking a quick moment to look at that, right? We know that losing a parent earlier in life can negatively impact a child's self-esteem, psychosocial well-being, sleep, stress levels, sadness, mental health, behavior, education, and physical health. Although young children may not fully understand the permanence of death, their development may suffer from having lost an attachment figure, especially a mother. So let's keep that in mind, okay? Now, at some point after, Robert, the father, married a woman by the name of Sophia Oakes, and together they had two more children. So Robert had a total of nine children. When he was old enough to begin school, he attended King's School in Rochester, Kent. Sources stated that this is the second oldest school in the UK, founded in 604 AD. Mind blown, guys. Can you believe that? That's freaking old. The oldest is said to be King's School in Canterbury. And while he was there, as he got older, on up in grades, it was noticed that he had a rather impressive talent for art and painting in particular. Because of this talent, at 20 years old, he was admitted to the prestigious Royal Academy of Arts, located in London, one hour west from his hometown. But for the UK, that's quite a distance. Now, the Royal Academy of Arts is an independent, privately funded institution led by eminent artists and architects. Its purpose is to promote the creation, enjoyment, and appreciation of the visual arts through exhibitions, education, and debate. It does not receive funding from the Crown or the state. It operates as a charity, which surprised me. So at the age of 23, Richard was awarded the Medal for Life Drawing in 1840. He also won awards for his architectural drawings as well, but it was said that Richard much preferred painting landscapes and Shakespearean scenes. He also drew a self-portrait of himself 
1841. Now, if you guys are just listening, I highly recommend you look up his work, right? But if you are watching the video, this is where you would see that self-portrait. I mean, his art, amazing, amazing. Now, due to his obvious talent in 1842, he was commissioned to do the illustrations for the Book of British Ballads. Also in his early 20s, he and a group of artists such as William Powell Frith, Alfred Elmore, John Philip, Augustus Egg, Edward Matthew Ward, and Henry O'Neill all formed a group they called the Click. This group has been described as, quote, the first group of British artists to combine for greater strength and to announce that the great backward-looking tradition of the Academy was not relevant to the requirements of contemporary art, end quote. It was at these meetings that they would do all manner of things that young, semi-wealthy, or decently well-to-do young men did. They also read kind of poetry, maybe risque poetry, but mostly they would produce drawings on the same subject and ask someone who was not an artist to judge their works and how they did. And this group stayed together for a few years, and all of the artists, save Richard, were later successful members of the Royal Academy of Arts. Why, do you ask? Well, we're getting to that. But it was said that out of all of the artists in the clique, he was considered the, quote, leading talent, which I think speaks volumes. So during this time in Richard's life, one of his father's friends, a Scottish artist by the name of David Roberts, had returned from a trip to the holy lands of the Middle East as well as Egypt. David had always been impressed with Richard's artistic abilities and suggested to his friend, Sir Thomas Phillips, that he take Richard with him on a trip to the Middle East that Sir Thomas was currently planning, or at the time planning. And David knew that Sir Thomas needed someone to go with him to record and draw what they saw during the trip. So in July of 1842, Richard joined the trip and was taken through Greece, Turkey, Syria, Israel, Jordan, and on into Egypt. And he sketched what he saw, groups of camels in Syria, food vessels, the turbans they wore in what color, mosques, citadels, temples at Luxor, you name it. And even in his quick sketches, you can see the level of detail he was able to take in while looking at the buildings and the subjects. Very little went unnoticed by Richard. But as much as he was just visually drinking in all of the little oddities and the little costumes, Sir Thomas was more ready to move on from place to place. By November, so four months into the journey, sources stated that they had spent a long and difficult two weeks in southern Syria, passing from Jerusalem to Jordan and returning across the Engadi wilderness. Richard told Sir Thomas that he simply could not sketch while on horseback, which I think we could all sympathize with. And by the time they would stop in camp, it was really too dark to sketch anything. Remember, no real cameras or cameras in their extreme infancy. No big camping LED lamps, none of that, nada. 
He had to sketch in the moment, from memory, and by campfire only if it were at night, so not really ideal for an artist. Now, according to Professor Graham Yorston, he wrote to a friend about this part of the trip Richard did, and he said, quote, The excitement of these scenes is enough to trouble a weakened mind. I have lain down at night with my imagination so full of vagaries that I have really and truly doubted of my own sanity, end quote. And what he was saying was that he felt that his mind was beginning to break a bit. There was an inexplicable and unexpected change in his thoughts, and it was troubling him a bit. He was cognizant enough to know something was wrong. Now, the people around him have said that this change in Richard came on very suddenly. But Richard told someone much later in his life that it was quick, in a sense, but that he remembered his thoughts began to feel like they were fracturing after he sat and smoked a hookah for five days, all day and night, guys. Now, was he, what was he smoking in the hookah? I mean, I suppose it could have been tobacco, and we can certainly hope that it was, but it was also very common for people to be smoking hashish or opium, and it is highly likely that he was smoking at least one of the two. Now, for those that don't know, okay, some people not privy, Hashish comes from the cannabis plant, so I think everyone understands the effects of that, right? Opium is extracted from the poppy plant, much like morphine, so there is also that. Regardless, he said that while he was doing this, he began to feel like the bubbling sound coming from inside the hookah was trying to communicate with him. The sound was communicating. The people around him described him during this change as being increasingly delusional, violent, and saying that he was under the control of Osiris, the Egyptian god. But at the time, they thought that perhaps he had sunstroke, which we now call heat stroke. He complained of headaches and feeling a bit of both anxiousness and depression. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. But it became serious enough that Sir Thomas decided, you know, they'd better head back. And as they traveled up through Italy... Richard's mental state was getting more intense, much, much worse. They specifically noted that any discussion that involved any level of religion or politics would not be tolerated by Richard. And I say, here, here, honestly, those two topics, gross. It was said that as they passed through Rome, Richard became nearly overwhelmed with the urge to attack the Pope. Thank God he did not. Now, Sir Thomas noted that, as they got up into Paris in the spring of 1943, everyone knew Richard wasn't suffering from too much sun. They knew that something was most assuredly wrong with him. Sir Thomas actually told Richard that he should probably be seen by a doctor. 
But again, according to Professor Graham Yorston, he left the group and showed up in London, just kind of randomly. He settled into a place to live and apparently adopted a strict diet of eggs and beer. He spent his time painting, intensely painting, and sketching. So the locals, his neighbors, could tell that something just wasn't quite right with Richard, right? So his conversations with people became increasingly difficult to understand, and he expressed bizarre beliefs. So someone got a hold of his father. Someone got a hold of Papa Dad. His father then sent him to be seen by Dr. Alexander Sutherland. Now, the good doctor said that Richard was suffering from, quote, an aberration of the intellect, end quote, and said that he needed to be admitted into an asylum. But Robert, the father, didn't want to do that to his son, and, you know, with good reason. As we're all pretty acquainted with, the idea that mental asylums back in the early to mid-1800s were no joke, right? According to Science Museum, quote, The Victorian mental asylum has the reputation of a place of misery where inmates were locked up and left to the mercy of their keepers. But when the first large asylums were built in the early 1800s, they were part of a new, more humane attitude towards mental health care. The Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum on the outskirts of London was one of the first of the new state asylums, and it set many of the standards for mental health care in the Victorian age. But patients were physically restrained. They were helpless and at the complete mercy of their caregivers. And, you know, some of the asylums were okay, right? A lot of them were not. So I think we can all understand his father's hesitation to just throw him in an asylum. Now, unfortunately, this would be the wrong decision. It was said that the family whisked him away to the more rural village of Cobham for the little rest and a little bit of peace. It wasn't far from where he had grown up and he had always loved to draw the scenery there. But on August 28th, 1843, the now 26-year-old Richard told his father he wanted to, quote, unburden his mind and met up with his father to have dinner together. When they were finished, they took a stroll through a nearby park. And Richard realized rather quickly that the man that he was walking with was actually not his father. That man was in fact a demon or the devil himself in disguise, but of course it really was his father. So Richard hit his father, knocking him to the ground. He then took out a knife and slashed his father's throat. And as his father lay on the ground dying, Richard stabbed him in the chest, twisting and turning the blade. It was said that he then raised his arms up, looking to the sky, and said, quote, Go and tell the great god Osiris that I have done the deed which is to set him free. End quote. After this, he grabbed his passport, didn't bother to change his clothes, and fled to Dover and hopped on a ferry over to Calais, France, which, by the way, I looked it up, I get curious, it's about an hour and a half ride. That's it. From England to France, hour and a half on a boat. 
Robert's body was found early the next morning. The authorities searched Richard's apartment and found sketches that he had done of his loved ones with their throats cut. So Richard's next mission was allegedly to eventually arrive in Vienna, Austria, so that he could then go on to murder Emperor Ferdinand I. Somewhere near Paris, while riding in a stagecoach, he became convinced the stars above were telling him to slit the throat of a fellow passenger, and he actually attempted to do so, but was thankfully overpowered and the police arrested him. He explained to them that he was the artist Richard Dad, and that he was a wanted man for murdering his own father. He was taken to an asylum in Fontainebleau while they were getting things together to send him back to England to face his crime. He was in that asylum for about 10 months, and it was said that he didn't paint at all during this time. Now, while there, the doctor that tended to him stated that Richard was suffering from, quote, homicidal monomania, end quote, due to excessive work and not getting enough sleep, quote, unexpected disappointments, and so on. The doctor said that Richard believed himself to be the son of the son and would stare at the son for extended periods of time, unblinking. It was said that he saw devils in his own saliva. Now, of course, we know now that Richard was experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia, and this wouldn't really have been a big surprise because two of his siblings had the condition and a third had, quote, a private attendant for unknown reasons. Now, most of us are quite familiar with what schizophrenia is, but for those who want to know more, let's Let's just touch on it briefly. Now, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, schizophrenia is a serious brain disorder that causes people to interpret reality abnormally. They don't know what sights, sounds, and experiences are real or what they are imagining. Schizophrenia usually involves delusions or false beliefs, hallucinations, which are seeing or hearing things that don't exist, unusual physical behavior, and disorganized thinking and speech. Some of it can be they start a sentence speaking about one thing, and then the last half of the sentence is something completely separate, unrelated, has nothing to do with what they just said. That's that disjointed speech. So, for example, they may believe that someone is controlling their mind or is going to cause them harm. These psychotic episodes are often frightening, confusing, and isolating. And we aren't really 100% sure what causes schizophrenia, but genetic makeup and brain chemistry likely play a role. Millions of people suffer from schizophrenia, and when people first experience the symptoms and episodes, they may not seek treatment for a variety of reasons. They may not know that they are sick, or they may be ashamed of being labeled with a serious mental illness. Okay, we know that Richard had some level of awareness as it was beginning to take hold, so to speak. Usually, it starts between the ages of 16 to 30. Now, in men, symptoms usually start in the late teens and early 20s. And in women, the symptoms typically start in the mid-20s to very early 30s. 
Symptoms may vary from person to person, of course. I mean, everything exists on a spectrum, right? They may change over time, the symptoms. They may experience false beliefs that cannot be changed, even when presented with facts. These are the delusions. Seeing or hearing things that do not exist, such as a voice making commands. Those are the hallucinations, and those commands are usually not very nice. The belief that others are reading or controlling their minds is another one. They have disorganized thinking and speech, including shifting from one thought to the next without a logical connection, as I was just saying, and they may speak in sentences that do not make sense to others. They experience difficulty speaking and expressing emotion, as well as problems with attention, memory, and organization. They display disorganized or abnormal physical behavior, including inappropriately repetitive or excessive or strange actions, or a complete lack of movement or talking, almost catatonic. And they have a reduced ability to function normally, such as ignoring personal hygiene or not showing real emotion. Now, antipsychotic medications help get symptoms under control, making them less intrusive and disturbing. A psychiatrist may need to try different medications at different doses before finding the most effective medication with the least amount of side effects. And the medications for schizophrenia, this, the side effects are, they can be intense. It can take several weeks to notice an improvement in symptoms as well. For people who do not respond to medication, electroconvulsive therapy or ECT may be an option. This brain stimulation technique passes small electrical currents through the brain to ease the symptoms of schizophrenia. But we must remember that this was long before the treatments that we have today. So, Richard's trial was in 1844 in Rochester. As his charge was read, Dad argued, quote, You say I am the murderer, you be why villain, end quote. Again, a little nonsensical. But he was ultimately found to be criminally insane, which was a diagnosis that saw him institutionalized in an asylum rather than being thrown in prison. At this moment, Richard's loss of autonomy coincided with the end of his time in Kent. He was then sent to the criminal department of Bethlehem Psychiatric Hospital, also known as Bedlam. Now, this place already had a reputation. Bethlehem, again, is a psychiatric hospital in London. Its famous history has inspired several horror books, films, and TV series. It was founded in 1247 under the rule of Henry III, and the original location was in the parish of St. Botolph, Bishopgate's ward, just beyond London's wall and where the southeast corner of Liverpool Street Station now stands. So any of you living around in that area, there you go. It was first used as a facility for the insane in 1377. In 1632, it was recorded that the old house of Bethlehem had, quote, below stairs a parlor, a kitchen, two larders, which are cupboards or pantries, a long entry throughout the house, and 21 rooms wherein the poor distracted people lie, and above the stairs, eight rooms more for servants and the poor to lie in. End quote. Now, inmates deemed dangerous were restrained, chained, and locked up, 
but the rest of the patients were allowed to roam freely within the confines of the institution. People who entered heard, quote, cryings, screechings, roarings, brawlings, shaking of chains, swearings, frettings, and chafings, end quote. Now, when I say it was unsanitary and disgusting with regards to human waste, in the late 1600s, I'm not joking. Not even a tiny bit. The hospital went through some changes. It was moved in 1803, rebuilt, and looked rather impressive. The late 18th to early 19th centuries saw the decision to change how these people were treated. There was a decisive emergence of new attitudes towards the management and treatment of the insane. Increasingly, the emphasis shifted from the external control of the mad through physical restraint and coercion to their moral management where self-discipline would be instilled through a system of rewards and punishments. This new approach would seek to re-socialize and re-educate those deemed mad, quite mad. Bethlehem, embroiled in scandal from 1814 over its inmate conditions, would come to symbolize quite the opposite. Inspections of the hospital found portions of it uninhabitable, and patients wandering around in the general population, rather than being separated by whatever issues they may face to minimize incidents. Many patients were chained up or tied to whatever object, and sometimes by a chain around the neck like, like a dog chained to an outside box. A lot of them were naked and sitting in their own filth. Now, an American military man who was housed there for many years was observed by a visitor who said, quote, it's kind of a long quote, a stout iron ring was riveted about his neck from which a short chain passed to a ring made to slide upwards and downwards on an upright massive iron bar more than six feet high inserted into the wall. Round his body, a strong iron bar, about two inches wide, was riveted. On each side of the bar was a circular projection, which, being fashioned to and enclosing each of his arms, pinioned them close to his sides. This waist bar was secured by two similar iron bars, which, passing over his shoulders, were riveted to the waist both before and behind. The iron ring about his neck was connected to the bars on his shoulders by a double link. From each of these bars, another short chain passed to the ring on the upright bar. He had remained thus encaged and chained for more than 12 years. End quote. Can you imagine? Now, during Richard's time there, it was fortunately a time of reform for the asylum. Dr. Alexander Morrison, who wrote the book, The Physiognomy of Mental Diseases, it's hard to say, was researching and observing patients to see if there would be a way to tell what kind of mental illness each patient was experiencing just by looking at their facial expressions. And it was during this research of sorts that Dr. Morrison used artists to draw the faces and expressions of the patients. One of the artists immediately recognized or otherwise knew that Richard was in that facility. And thankfully, Dr. Morrison allowed Richard access to art materials. 
And really, guys, Richard wasted no time and immediately began painting again. And although he was still in the throes and and in the battles of his own mind, right, still sometimes being violent toward other patients, he was still always allowed to paint, which I personally think is kind of wonderful. Richard really didn't want visitors, and it didn't take too long before the outside world had all but forgotten about him. In Professor Graham Yorston's documentary, he stated that many of Richard's paintings that went for sale were sold under the title, quote, the late Richard Dad, as if he had passed away. But he hadn't. And his collection of The Passions, created throughout the 1850s, really shows his own interpretation of murder, agony, brutality, and betrayal. While murder is apparently self-explanatory, Richard himself never stopped believing that he had, in fact, slain the devil rather than his own father. In the painting itself, the figures represent the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. These works are still held in what is now the Bethlehem Museum of the Mind. One of the top administrators had this to say about Richard, even though he again had violent tendencies, quote, he can be a very sensible and agreeable companion and show in conversation a mind once well educated and thoroughly informed in all of the particulars of his profession in which he still shines and would, it is thought, have preeminently excelled had circumstances not opposed. End quote. Richard still believed that Osiris had really been his real father. His delusions never really relented. In 1852, 35-year-old Richard created an amazing portrait of Dr. Alexander Morrison, which now hangs in the Scottish National Portrait Gallery. And so this kind of begs the question, did his severe mental illness affect his talent at all? Not really, guys. The paintings he did for the rest of his life still showed his incredible talent. Not all artists with schizophrenia's art stayed relatively the same, and we will eventually get to a few of those arts who most assuredly took on the extreme and the strange. But not Richard. Not really. He painted unimaginably detailed fantasy paintings, but it was said that the one thing you could kind of notice was that the eyes of the main characters became ever increasingly sort of staring off, dissociated, you know, far off gazes and unfocused. So in 1855, Richard painted many watercolors called, quote, sketches to illustrate the passions, which include grief or sorrow, love and jealousy, as well as agony, raving, madness, and murder. In the 1860s, Richard painted one of his most famous pieces called, quote, The Fairy Feller's Master Stroke. And really, how does one describe this work? If you're watching the video again, then you're seeing it now. But the, for those who are just listening, it's really kind of hard to describe. He did work on this painting for nine years, and he didn't actually get to complete it. There appears on the canvas small, intimate groups of people on what appears to be like a hillside or near some rock wall. All characters are in various dress. Some look quite medieval, 
and other in rather modern attire, at least for those times. Some are chatting amongst themselves, others are playing instruments. There are daisies painted sporadically, weighing more heavily on the right side of the painting. There are women with fairy wings, large, odd insects, including uh, some very small people, and what nearly looks like Bilbo Baggins just sitting on a rock, kind of rolled into himself, his eyes wide and crossed, showing signs of confusion and distress. It is an amazing painting, to be sure. In 1864, Richard was transferred to the famous Broadmoor Hospital. In all of his years in asylums, it was said that he never felt any remorse for murdering his father. He stayed convinced that he had done the absolute right and moral thing by killing him. His belief that his father had been a demonic imposter never changed. It never wavered. He stayed having random outbursts of violence against other patients, but then would famously deeply apologize to them immediately after. And so he was classified as dangerous throughout his time at both the Bethlehem and Broadmoor asylums, but this did not stop the hospital authorities from granting him considerable freedom. He was given his own studio at Broadmoor and allowed to use knives for carvings. He was also free to access the asylum grounds where he spent many hours watching the other patients play cricket. Richard continued to paint whilst he was confined, and in addition to his artworks, he also painted scenery for the entertainment halls and murals, all of which have now unfortunately been lost, much to my immense sadness. The reporting in the press during his time is notable for the degree of sympathy that they extended toward Richard. He was often described as being sad and unhappy. One piece written about him says, quote, He has always been considered as a young man of a most mild disposition and had ever exhibited the warmest and most affectionate attachment to his father, end quote. How different this kind of reporting was compared to the insufferable reporting of violence by people with schizophrenia that we see in the press today. It's kind of embarrassing, really. In his last few years, it was reported that he had contracted tuberculosis and his health declined fairly rapidly, and yet he did not stop painting. He painted until he physically could not paint anymore. The illness made him lose a considerable amount of weight, and it was said that he ultimately died from tuberculosis on January 7, 1886, at the age of 69. He is buried at Broadmoor. He had spent 42 years of his life in institutions. And now, a number of his artwork pieces are displayed in some of the most prestigious galleries in the world, he fell into moderate obscurity from his death until about the 1960s when he was sort of rediscovered. And get this, Freddie Mercury from the band Queen wrote the song The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke based on Richard's painting. I happened to find out about Richard while watching a video on YouTube about talented artists who suffered with severe mental illness or other issues with the brain, and it really stuck with me 
because in this true crime line of work, we don't really get this kind of glimpse into their minds, whereas the artist can give us perhaps a small visual of what they see or experience in their mind's eye. I have always wondered what it would be like to see what they see, to experience what they do. And yet, there is a small part of me, a very real small part of me, that is a little scared of that experience. So, if you liked this episode, the severe mental illness and artists, or if you have suggestions for anything else, although my list is out of control, by all means, DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can come join the Facebook page, uh, Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that was created by a beloved listener. I'm very active on both Instagram and the Facebook page. And as always, thank you so much, guys, for listening, because I know that you could be listening to anyone else, but you keep choosing me, and I am very, very appreciative. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.